Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now here's the show. Welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast, the podcast that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. I'm your host, Rob Weatherly. We've got a great roundtable show coming for you this week. Uh, we're joined by a whole series of people from the Talking Reef Forums. Uh, this is something that was put together by Samuel Helms, known as Estrivian on the forums, and uh, kind of got everybody together. And I'm just here to sit along and help out and keep everything going for everybody. So, um, again, my name is Rob. You all know me. Uh, so let's go through and do some introductions to everybody that's on this roundtable discussion. Um, Let's go ahead and start with uh, Bobby first, and we'll work right all the way around the table. Uh, hi, this is Bobby Moser, known as Reef Keeper on the forums. Uh, about two and a half years in the hobby, about two years coral propagation. I have currently an SPS-dominated 125-gallon display tank, a 100-gallon mostly SPS frag tank, 30-gallon refugium, and a 100-gallon sump all plumbed together. Hi, this is Carmi Scarpetti. I'm known as Carmi Joe on the forums. And I have a 54-gallon corner tank with about a 10-gallon sump refugium underneath of it and a 24-gallon nanocube. This is Pearson Hurst. I'm known as P. Hurst on the forums. I've been at this for about two years now. I have a 120-gallon mixed reef display and a 12-gallon nano in my office. This is Mike Harris, known as Mike B. Harris. I've got a 120, mostly SPS display tank with a 100-gallon sump, a 25-gallon fuse with a 90-gallon frag tank, which is all pumped together. And this is Samuel, or Srivian, and I'm the noob of this session. I have a 100-gallon display uh, bryopsis-dominated tank with two small baby clownfish, and that's all. <laughs> and about 100 gallons in, in the sump as well, but, again, also dominated by bryopsis currently. <laughs> all right, and uh, as I mentioned, we got a roundtable show for you. This show is going to be on tank maintenance and various items related to tank maintenance. And the first thing we're going to talk about, we're going to hand over to Sam uh, to talk about uh, various cleaning methods and stuff that's used just uh, on a general basis. So, Sam, you want to start there? Sure, um, and feel free, anyone, uh, to jump in there. Um, my tank's been up and running for just a few months, so if anyone uses different things, feel free to jump in on that. But um, mostly what I use when I'm cleaning power heads or pumps or whatever is vinegar just to get the just general gunk off of it, um, especially all that calcified stuff. And I actually use, uh, I don't know if the ratio is all that important, but I use mostly vinegar, um, so I end up, kind of burning through a good gallon of vinegar every couple of weeks um, just to get everything to clean off. I'll, I, I do use bleach, and I, I, Carmi, I might have been used at this. I, I was actually had a fear of bleach because it's hard to get out. Um, it's hard to get the residue of bleach off. Um, but someone said just add the, add the uh, what is it called, the, uh, the stuff you add to water normally. Yeah, prime or whatever to get the chlorine dechlorinator. Yeah, to get the chlorine out. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It goes chlorine bleach. 
I <laughs> but one of the other things that I've been using, um, which is kind of kind of a random little chem I don't know if it's a chemical or what, but it's something called One Step. It's uh, actually you could find it at your local friendly beer and wine making supply store. And what it is is this little powder that you add in about it's about a tablespoon per gallon, and uh, it uses it. It's kind of like an OxyClean. It uses uh, um, ozone to clean everything, and it wipes out virtually any bacteria that's in there. And you're not if you're making wine, you're not supposed to rinse it, but I rinse it anyway just to make sure. Um, and I've been using that just because I have a bunch of it, and it seems to work pretty well. I don't use it that often. I don't disinfect stuff too too frequently. I certainly don't disinfect power heads or anything, but every now and then something gets gunky. So. Uh, in terms of tools and whatnot, the pipe cleaners are probably the, the funnest thing. Uh, just the ones that you bend around. Uh, I don't reuse them, though. I tend to clip them and toss them because I'm worried about them rusting on me. Um, but again, the beer and wine making places have a whole variety of different size um, bottle brushes and bottle cleaners, which are which I find really helpful to clean out the screens of power heads and um, to get inside power heads and clean out in, inside the little... I don't know, a little cylinder that's in there. Yeah, especially with the, the maxi jets, that's good for like the the uh, outlets and stuff like that. You can't always get into. Oh, the outlets. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, good for kind of getting in there. I usually don't need it that often, but every now and then, you know, my the bryopsis comes off of everything else in the tank and gets sucked in and forms these little clogs, so they don't have to scrape it out of there periodically. But um, those are those are what I have. I don't wear gloves when I'm in the tank. I probably should wear gloves when I'm in the tank. I just don't have any gloves. So I try to keep an eye on where the dumb sea urchins are when I'm <laughs> tinkering around because I don't want to get stabbed. But beyond that, I don't, <laughs> yeah. Um, what about stuff that you use in tank maintenance uh, for doing the glass or um, overflow boxes or anything like that that you might have? Oh, yeah, the glass. Um, actually, that's a good point. I, yeah, I have one of those glass cleaning mag float deals mm-hmm. um, that I'll use on the front. One thing I've noticed, though, is sometimes in the corners, and especially on the very top and the very bottom near the plastic, I have some issues getting down in there. I actually have, from one of the other failed DIY projects that I did a long time ago, I have a just a piece of broken acrylic that I'll use to scrape the to scrape the corners and scrape the top right, right. and just to try to get it out of the way. Although the snails and the isopods and stuff, I absolutely hate it when I do that, but whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's plenty of other stuff. I just clean the front. I don't clean any of the, any of the other sides. I just let them overgrow with gotcha. whatever. Yeah. That's something I, I know I clean all four sides of the tank. So I've got, I deal with Coraline and stuff on a crazy basis. Something mm-hmm. that I'd like to yeah. add real quickly to your stuff is uh, something that I use a a lot when doing my power heads are uh, a, to- a toothbrush, um, real good for oh, toothbrush, yeah. scrubbing out the little inlet strainers and in the pieces, and they can actually get within some of those, uh, like the maxi jets, um, the the place where the magnet goes, the impeller, the impeller housing, and all that yeah. stuff can get in there yeah. real good. Um, a lot of times, just to work in conjunction with what you've already mentioned, the bleach and in hot water, I'll, I'll throw it all into a, a five-gallon bucket and let it soak in there for a while. And I, you you mentioned ratios. I usually use about uh, a cup of bleach per gallon of water when I'm soaking my stuff. 
Um, the only other thing to throw in there is, and before I mention this is a disclaimer for glass tanks only, but I'll, I'll use razor blades to get those uh, upper and lower areas that you mentioned. Uh, you use the, the piece of acrylic yeah. for which is probably a safer method. Uh, but if you have a glass tank uh, <laughs> and you are careful with it, um, you can use razor blades to to scrape that stuff off, and uh, you can also use it to get. Now, again, I know this sounds crazy, but you, if you're careful, you can do along the edges of your your silicone seals, uh, as long as you know. Again, you don't want to oh, slice yeah. your seal open, but um, you don't want to slice the seal out. Yeah, uh, it's actually it's it works pretty you good, know, and it cleans off the coral line really quickly. And uh, uh, but as you mentioned with the pipe cleaners, you don't want to use it more than once or twice because even stainless steel will rust in salt water. So. Yeah, you know one thing I wanted to throw in there too. On the front of the glass, um, I actually you you had this tip a long time ago, Rob. Right? <laughs> Where it's just use newspaper and vinegar and water. Yep, yep. Um, that's what I do on the front, and it works great. Uh, one thing I did want to kind of throw out there, I, I've seen this stuff around this green substance that you use to wipe off salt creep. I don't use it. I've never had any need for it, but uh-huh. I don't know if anyone else uses that. Well, let's and then no, let's hand it over. Uh, if anybody's used that or any other just general tools or materials that you use in cleaning, if you wanna if you wanna throw those in, uh, let's go ahead and open it up for that. No, I use my elbow, elbow grease. <laughs> yeah. <That's> good. <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, as far as my tank is concerned, he's covered everything that I do. Awesome. Anybody else that wants to add anything to that before we move on to some of the more specific topics? The only other piece of equipment I ever use is a pair of tweezers. I have some, some keto growing down in my pump, and occasionally little bits break off and get stuck in the pump inlets for the return pump and the pump running the skimmer and phosphate reactor and everything. And it's just easy. you got a nice cheap pair of tweezers down there. Yeah. I can just reach in and pull that gunk out that gets stuck in there. Oh, yeah, awesome. You know, and that brings up another thing that when doing – water changes or dealing with uh, something that when I dealt with the flatworms that I had to use frequently to, to suck them up is use a piece of rigid airline tubing connected to a piece of flexible airline tubing, uh, fle- or, you know, flexible tubing. And then you can use that to get within small areas and cracks and suck out small stuff from within the tank, within the tank too. So something else people might use. Um, all right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on from there and go into the, the first topic that first topic we're going to talk about um and that's going to be skimmers so uh this topic we're going to hand off to mike to go ahead and talk about so mike you want to you want to take it over and talk about the type of skimmer you have and what you do with it on a regular basis okay i've got on my on my 120 i use the asm g4x skimmer and if you guys are familiar with that the skimmer cup the collection cup is quite big i think it holds about a gallon and a half so i only need to empty that out about every two weeks but when I do do that, I you know obviously inspect the seals, uh, hold the cup in the top of the acrylic uh, pipe, make sure there's no leaking in there. Um, and then about every couple months, I'll go in and check the uh, air ventral, the uh, where the air goes into the pump and makes the water. Out. Yeah, yeah, that will if you're not careful, if you don't check it on a regular basis, at least on my experience, it will get clogged up with. Um, I don't know what they're called, but they're like hard um, calcium deposits. Yeah, and that and you, what else? You what else happens is, uh, I mean, just from running salt, you get salt creep that gets in there. Mm. Um, that's we'll, true. That's we'll true. Plug yeah. It up. 
Uh, and just to, to throw in there, something that is a, a good preventative maintenance thing is uh, take a, a, some drops of top-off water. You know, I mean, obviously everybody's got to top off their tank. Um, so use fresh water. You don't want to use tank water because it defeats the purpose. But if you take fresh water through a, a small drop, dropper, eyedropper or something like that, and uh, just drop it through your, your air inlet, uh, that can help a lot to just kind of flush away any potentially building up, you know, anything, any salt creep that's building up in there. What would you recommend doing that uh, every month, every week? I do, I do it every day whenever I'm there. I, I mean, sometimes every multiple day. times. Well, you don't, and you don't have to, it's just, I've gotten the habit of doing it every day or two. Um, you know, if you, you probably, probably once a week, I, you know, it would probably, it would be a good way to go. Um, I'm just I'm always down there, and uh, when I'm in the in the fish room, I'll just grab my dropper because I use it frequently when feeding. I'll use my dropper to mix stuff or whatever, and my reservoir of fresh top top off water sits right there. Um, so it's it's nothing for me to just grab over and and uh, and squirt some in there. Uh, but yeah, once a week is probably good just to you know keep it clear and free. And uh, if you use those pipe cleaners that Samuel was mentioning, that's something else that you can usually clean out depending on the type of skimmer. Um, Now mine is, uh, I don't have any of the pipe cleaners, but what I found is mine's a life reef and I don't remember the model, but uh, my air inlet, it's a, it's a round inlet and it's actually, it's hard to explain, but it comes to like a V at the bottom or so it's like kind of a, a, a slit instead of a circle. And I use a small white uh, zip tie because it's it's rigid on the one side, and I'll, I'll run it through there to just kind of scrape it, uh, and that works pretty good too. Uh, but pipe clean pipe cleaners would probably work better. I just don't have any of them. Right. Well, I, as, all the other things that I do, I, I don't um, I don't take the skimmer out of my thumb and wipe it down and clean it. When I do empty my cup, I will clean that up pretty good. That way, I can just see where the level mm-hmm. of the foam is producing that. But I don't clean the uh, the big tube. And about six months to 12 months, I'll actually take the pump out. Well, I did on my old tank. My new tank hasn't been up and running that long. But I'll take the pump out and, you know, give it a good cleaning and just make sure there's no wear and tear on it. Yeah, and that's a good uh, thing because usually those pumps a lot of times will sit in a refugium or something. They can get, you know, depending on where that is, right. they can get clogged up sometimes more frequently than an in-tank pump. But uh yeah, I'm the same way with mine. I usually don't tear mine down too often. Uh, it's usually cleaning out the pump or the the collection cup in the neck. Yeah, and it never really made sense to me. A lot of people would talk about how they're they're you know they'll keep their skimmer perfectly clean, but the whole thing with the skimmer is it's collecting all the bacteria and all the waste, um, and that bacteria is going to eat the waste. So you know, keeping it sparkling clean to me really never made any sense. I don't. Maybe I'm wrong in thinking that. Well, it's not so much about the the bacteria that's in there. I mean, it's the the primary function would be you know, you know your foam fractation and, and using your foam to to collect all that waste and spit it out the cup. But one thing that I found with mine is I get uh, I have a tendency to get sponges and, and small little um, fan worms that will grow along the insides of my of the main tube. Um, and those do actually do additional water filtering. Uh, I mean, granted, I, I don't have that many of them in there, so, uh, but I leave them alone. I mean, the inside, it gets a, a layer of, of crud that sits on the bottom, but it, it doesn't get too big, and it's just, I, I let it go. Don't have any real problems with it. Right. As far as, as, far as what I do, that's really about it. On the camera. <laughs> um, 
anybody have anything they can add to that? Uh, actually, this is Samuel again. I, I just want to jump in and just ask something. When I was, I just got a skimmer recently. Um, a was it the super skimmer, Core Life Super, super mm-hmm. Core Life SS. Yep. It um, in the little directions, it was talking about how it would work better once a biofilm had sort of coated the inside of it. So to me, thinking about it, I was like, well, it seems like taking it out and cleaning out that big, big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Would be almost counterproductive in that way. Yeah, I, most people really just clean out, like I said, the neck and the um, and the collection cup. I don't know too many people that actually tear down their skimmer yeah. and, and give it a good scrub on a really regular basis. All right, well, um, I, I think we kind of covered that. I can't think of anything else that's that's really pressing to add about skimmers. They're they're usually pretty self sufficient. Um, again, just to recap, you want to you want to go through and, and clean out your pumps, make sure those stay free and clear, especially if you have them in a refugium where they can collect a lot of a lot of junk in there. Uh, uh, and then you know, keeping your collection cup clean and the the skimmer neck, uh, especially in an area where you, so you can watch the current water level in the skimmer. That's important uh, to maintain a good uh, functioning skimmer. Um, so let's move on from there. Uh, and talk about uh, power heads next. Uh, and well, and we're going to do pumps in general. We're going to include power heads, larger return pumps, closed loop pumps, whatever it might be. And uh, Bobby is going to go ahead and start this one off. So let me hand it over to you. All right. Uh, to be honest, I don't really do a lot of you know regular maintenance to power heads or my external pump, but. There are a few things that you can do to, to help assure that they're going to remain in good working order, which is, uh, you know, some of the, the stream pumps require a little less maintenance than, say, a MaxiJet or the uh, AquaClears. But on the smaller pumps, it's usually a good thing to go in once a month or two and clean out the intakes. Uh, like Rob stated before, I found it works best for me if I use like a toothbrush. Mm-hmm. Uh, toothbrushes can reach into a lot of places that you know, bigger towels or a rag or something can't reach into. But not a lot of people really use the smaller pumps anymore on, on modern reef tanks because they're so big. A lot of people go to the stream pumps, so like the COs, the Tunesies, the uh, the new high doors, which I have all of one of everything except for the tunes. The Coralias, the new high doors, I haven't had to do anything to those yet. They're they're pretty easy to take apart and put together, and there's not a lot of cleaning room to do anything on them. When I got mine, I took them all apart, you know, checked them out. There's really nothing to them. Uh, the COs are a little, little more in depth as far as how everything works. There's a lot more room in the bigger ones. Uh, you know, like I said, I just I run through them about once every six months or so, and just take them apart, clean them out, clean out the clean off the intakes to them. Because a lot of the stream pumps have the the larger intakes. And it, it takes them a lot longer to become obstructed. Uh, another thing that I I don't like about some of the 
the power head pumps are the suction cups. Suction cups have to be kept clean or you're going to end up with a sandstorm because the power head's going to fall to the sand. And everybody knows pretty much that when the power head falls to the sand and it disturbs the sand bed, you're pretty much asking for trouble. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What I like to do, what I like to do to my pumps is I take all the mounting hardware off and super glue them to something like a mag float. That way, you know, I have a CO 1500 mounted to one of the large mag floats and it hasn't moved in nine months. My high doors are kept on by mag floats and my modern maxi jet 1200 is kept on by a mag float. And, you know, that way it's just, it's just safe. And other than that, you know, go through, clean out your pumps every, every one or two months and you shouldn't have any problems out of them. Yep. That's, that's well, about external, when I do mine, about every six weeks or so. Right. Uh, for the external pump, you know, I've had, I chose to go external to keep heat out of my water, but <clears throat> I run a Gen X PCX 40, which is rated at 1190 gallons an hour. It's a rather small pump. A lot of people use the mag 24s or 18s, but all I needed was, you know, 1200 gallons an hour because I've only got one inch drains on my tank. So <clears throat> I haven't had to do anything to it yet but the one thing i can say for maintenance purposes and you know accident purposes always use unions on your intakes <laughs> and your outflows of your pumps yep yep if you don't do that you're gonna have to cut your plumbing apart and that's really not a lot of fun. No, no, no. That's about all I have. If anybody else has anything for for the pumps section, jump on in. Well, let me jump in real quick, and uh, I, I I think you I think you did clarify it, but in case anybody isn't sure, I think most people know this. But there's the two main different types of pumps. There's a small power powerhead pumps like the Maxi Jets and the Rios, uh, and then there's a larger uh, stream style pumps, which are I like the Tunzi styles or the Corellias, uh, and those are usually larger in size, but they significantly larger amounts of flow. Um, mine are pretty much, you know, I do. I've got a, ser- a couple of each of them, and uh, uh, you're right. They do. The stream pumps do not need as much regular maintenance. Uh, my maxi jets at this point, I've got to tear them down. Um, still about every six weeks, and, and get them cleaned out. My my CO for some reason, uh, it's a smaller one. It's an 820, and, but it it seems to get clogged up a lot more frequently than uh uh than i would like to because the intake the the openings on the intake are closer together or they're close enough together to to collect stuff in there and so i've got to go through those um but i'm the same way with the, my external pump i got a mag 24 and uh something we were talking about before uh before we started recording um re- replacing or tearing those down and cleaning them out can be uh, problematic when you're breaking those watertight seals on a pump that's out of the tank. Um, not that you shouldn't do it if you need to, but it's it's not something you're probably going to want to tear down every week to clean out. Uh, you know, especially if you've got you know plumbing <laughs> tape or water. You know, these watertight seals are. You know, the one of the downfalls of the Mag 24s is is the the threads on them are all plastic, and the one thread which is the the a female end is all plastic and if you over tighten it you'll split it and uh 
then you split that throat thread and you've, you've got a nasty mess on your hands and yeah, it's not fun to deal with. So, um, you know, make sure that when you're working with these, you're not yeah. over tightening your threads and you're using, you know, plumbing tape if you, if appropriate and, you know, just, uh, just be careful with that type of stuff. And I think well, at least with the mag 24, I was the one that was busting it down all the time. And it seemed like, you know, even, uh, large turbo snail if it got sucked into that thing it would be shredded and thrown yeah. back up to the top i don't know they seem pretty strong i don't yeah. know if much would stop them <laughs> yeah they'll 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 chew through most things i mean you know obviously you don't want to let stuff get sucked into there so you want it to be filtered um because it can chew up your impeller and i've had to replace an impeller on one of them before and they're you know relatively speaking they're not too expensive but they're you know 30 40 dollars for an impeller assembly um so uh you know, you want to try to protect it a little bit. Um, but uh, anybody else want to jump in on powerheads, uh, different types of powerheads, uh, wave-making systems, anything like that you have to deal with or maintain? Well, I was going to say, Rob, that with using the MagFlow on the back of the powerhead like that, you can, if you have any green spots that are created from the growth of your corals, you can fine-tune it by moving it easier Yeah, like that with the, uh, with the, with the suction cups. Yep. Which that, is a, that's, that's something I've never thought of. I, I kind of like that idea. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, with the with the um, Hydor Corollias that I, you know, I've got the one, and that comes with a combination suction cup magnet type doohickey. It's it's basically a magnetized suction cup on on both ends. The so it it, it holds pretty solid. Uh, so I I've left that one alone. My Maxi Jets, I no longer use the suction cups. Um, there was. A, I'm not. I think it was. I don't remember which show it was, but I did do a show on on dealing with those suction cups. If you have to use them, um, we can go back and look for that. Uh, but uh, I've got all them mounted on hooks that go over the the side of the tank. Um, and my there's a CO modification. Basically, everything that comes with your CO, you, you can twist some parts around and make it like a, a hook that goes over the top of the tank to hold that in place. But, uh, yeah, mounting them to the, the mag floats or stuff like that's a, it's a good idea if you, if you've got those available. Right. And I just, I just wanted to throw one more thing in there. Uh, it may sound kind of repetitive, but I really can't stress it enough is if you do, if you are using the smaller power heads, you absolutely have to keep the algae and, um, everything out from behind those suction cups. Yes. Or you will eventually lose it, and yep. when they fall, uh, it could create all kinds of problems in a reef. Yeah, so the glass has to stay clean, the suction cups have to be stay clean, and the, the important thing to remember is if you have suction cups, they're going to fail. They do not last forever. In fact, they don't even last that long. You're lucky to get you know six months out of a, out of a sex, set of suction cups. Um, so be prepared and be ready to deal with those things. One of the things that I do is I like to put my um, power heads into a bucket of water with maybe a cup of vinegar and let them run for an hour or so every few months um, because that seems to get the calcium deposits that, that bind up the impeller um, cleared out. Right. That's something I actually meant to mention is running them in a, in a five-gallon bucket of vinegar and water. Uh, kind of slipped my mind there for a minute. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's a good point, Carmi, that uh to do that. And that's that's normally the procedure that I go through when I go through my cleaning cycle. 
Um, but it, it's it's good to to mention because uh, calcium deposits are usually attracted to to hot spots, and pumps have a tendency to be hot spots. Um, so it's you know almost natural that they're going to deposit or get a lot of calcium deposits on them. And the vinegar water usually does a real good job breaking it. All right, was there uh, anybody else that wanted to add anything about uh, power heads or or wave makers or anything like that? I think somebody had a wave maker. That uh, was there anything specific to that? Uh, this is Mike. I've got the uh, Wave 2K wave maker. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as maintenance goes on that, there is a. If you guys are not, uh, if you guys are familiar with it, it's a, uh, has a DC motor on it or electric motor on it. With it's kind of like belt driven. Uh, the only thing that I need to do to that is, on occasion, adjust the uh, tightness of the belt. Um, other than that, there's there's coralline algae growing on the outside, and there's a little bit of green algae growing on the inside. But the way the the way the machine works, um, it basically cleans itself. Awesome. But you got to keep your eyes on the tight on the uh, tension of the belt. Right, right. That's the biggest thing with that. Cool. That's now, really about it. now, Sam, you had uh, so I think you had those little. Uh, attachments for the power heads do you want to take a minute and talk about yeah. things to do with those and to make sure that they stay running for you <laughs> yeah actually i think the what is the full name is the hydor hydro rotating water deflector something like that. <laughs> um i call it the little turny <laughs> thing rather long name for little turny thing yeah, <laughs> it works for me <laughs> um but yeah you stick them on the end of a variety of uh power heads and they have different sizes i guess so um i the way i thought they had worked was they turn by the force of the water deflecting off one side or something like that it would kind of push it around um actually there's almost like a fan inside with a couple gears plastic gears and as the water blows through it spins this fan and rotates the gears and causes the whole sucker to turn um and i stuck i stuck them both on a maxi jet uh 1200 so there's a pretty good amount of water going through those little guys and they turn, um, I don't know, maybe once every second. The problem is because there's so many gears and all that jazz, once any kind of floating algae gets in there, it has a tendency to stay in there. <laughs> it doesn't come back out. I do have screens on the power heads, but every now and then something will get sucked through. Right. Um, it's easy enough to identify the problem because I mean, I'll take them apart. They come apart really easily. Um, and I would do that over a bucket or over something other than a sink. Yeah, you don't want to <laughs> lose those little pieces. Once you pop it out, the gears fall out. Yeah, and so I've almost lost a gear down the drain a couple times. And like, okay, that's the end of that. So I started taking them apart over a sink. But I mean, it's easy enough to put back together. It's a really simple device. Um, and cleaning it once you get it apart, cleaning it's really just a matter of rinsing it. I don't really need much else um, to do it since it comes apart to such small little pieces right and you know it goes back together just a matter of seconds throw it back in there but then when you get an idea of how quickly it's turning the more gunk that get built built up in there the slower it goes which actually indicates that you're not getting enough flow through there as well <laughs> so when you start seeing it slow down that's when i just pop it off and it's, it's easy enough to take off the power head i just you know pull it off um throw in a bucket of water kind of swish it around and push it back on there I'll do that every other week um, now just because especially after especially after you do any work in the tank and you stir up all the stuff 
yeah. floating around and they get sucked into the power heads. It'll clog those in a second. I did that when I was fighting the hair algae. I was sucking it up and there was all of this floating around and it got sucked in there and clogged them and they stopped. Yeah, and just so, I, and I can't to, imagine that to yeah. throw in for everybody the these little uh, deflectors. Mm-hmm. They're 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 semi controversial. I mean, there's some people that really are against them and some people that really like them. And just so everybody knows. Um, if you're not familiar with them, they sound like a, a great little thing. I mean, they sit on the end of a, a regular power head and add this randomizing water current. Um, they turn around and blow the water all over the place. However, that does come at a cost. And as you've heard, they require semi-frequent maintenance. They've got to be cleaned out very regularly or they stop working uh, as efficiently as they could. Uh, and the other thing is they are, with all those little gears, are susceptible to breaking uh, if they're not cleaned out. Uh, and the other yeah. thing to keep in mind and you have to accommodate for is when you put anything like that on your power head, it's going to reduce the overall amount of flow that comes out of your, out of your pump. So it's not, you know, the end of the world. Just make sure that, uh, you know, maybe you need to add an extra power head to accommodate for, you know, the loss of flow from three of these on, on three different pumps. So, you know, just so you know, they're they're not. I don't want to say that they're good or they're bad or that everybody should or shouldn't use them. Just make sure you understand them and that um, you're ready to deal with the maintenance that comes along with them and and so on and so forth. Obviously, Sam, you said you you seem you've been using them and you like them a lot. So you know, everybody everybody has yeah, their thing. Yeah, they seem to do. Yeah, they do. I have uh, two pointing at each other and they do all right. I mean, for uh, what are they like? Twenty bucks? I mean, it's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and at the end of the day, Stuff probably <laughs> a wave maker or some larger stream pumps or something like that might be the better way to go. Uh, but, you know, if you're getting your tank set up or if you've got a smaller tank and you don't want to spend $50, $60, $70 on some of these larger pumps or whatever, then it, it might be a good option for you. Just make sure that you're, you know, like I said, that you're prepared oh, yeah. to, to deal with uh, what comes along with them. So, um. All right. Is there anything else on pumps or power heads, closed loop systems, or anything else like that we want to mention? Okay. I think that probably wraps that one up. I, I know that we talked about the, the, the larger external pumps. Um, the closed loop pumps are usually fairly similar to, well, I, it's kind of a cross between the two depending on how you're set up. Uh, again, the important thing is you want to make sure that you keep your, your intakes clear on all your pumps, uh, especially pumps that are in refugiums for, for skimmers or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, keep them, keep them cleaned out to help keep them running efficiently. So on that note, let's move on to the next topic. And we're going to talk about, uh, heaters, chillers, and controllers. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, hand this one over to Carmi and let her go ahead and talk about that. I run, um, a drop-in chiller and a heater that's in my sump, and I use both of those with a temperature controller, a dual-phase temperature controller. So what I do on a daily basis is I take a look at that controller just to make sure that the temperature is where it's supposed to be, and I'll wipe it off because it does get salt creep on it because it's underneath my aquarium in the cabinet with my sump. So I'll wipe it off, and then once every... I don't know, a couple weeks or something. What I'll find is I have to wipe the um, outlet, the, the 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 tube that goes from the drop-in part of the chiller back to the cooling part of the chiller, to the compressor. That'll need to be wiped off every once in a while because it'll get salt creep on it. The, the part that goes into the sump itself, that really doesn't need much maintenance because it's under the water. 
and it's metal, so you don't really want to do anything with it that would cause that to um, be reactive. And then with my heater, I'll pull that out every once in a while, just wipe it off. The other thing I find the most important about it is I'll try to make sure that the electrical cord for the heater stays wiped off and free of salt creep, just because I think the salt creep makes the, the power cords become brittle and not not as flexible they ought to be. So that's that's pretty much my maintenance routine with, with the whole the whole shooting match. It's, it's you know, just a couple minutes every day to look at it and make sure that we're on the right temperature. And then, you know, once every couple weeks or so to wipe off those power cords and, and that, that tube that leads from the drop in part of the chiller to the compressor to make sure it's free of salt. Can I ask a, a kind of a, this is Samuel, by the way. Can I ask a quick follow-up question to that to to, to you, Carmen? I guess to everybody. I, do you ever get any uh, a lot of calcium on your heaters? I don't seem to really have as much problem with calcium building up on my heater as I do on the impellers for my pumps. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> I, I get a decent <laughs> calcium on mine, um, but it's it's not too bad. Mine sit in a in a refugium. Um, but it's, it mine aren't real bad. I mean, you can definitely notice a layer building up on them, though. Do you know is it is it bad for the heater or is it just kind of annoying? You know, I I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't usually get that much on it, and um, usually on my heaters, uh, which just for you know whatever sake, I use I'm predominantly of the stealth heaters, those black Visitherm stealth heaters. Um, it, it usually wipes right off. Uh, I, I take them out of the tank frequently when doing water changes or whatever to heat up my water, my buckets before I put them in. And, uh, I always wipe off the, the heater before I do that. And a lot of times, most of that calcium deposit layer comes right off when I wipe it off. So, you know, I, I haven't really let them run too long with oh. it on there. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, on, a, on a side note, before you know, something I wanted to ask Carmi, um, with your temperature controllers, uh, is there anything that you do special with the the probes that read the temperature in the tank? Are they mounted, or uh, how are they mounted? And do you have to go through and make sure that those are cleaned up and stuff like that? I don't really do much with cleaning the probe. Um, the next time I tear my sump apart, I'm actually going to take a piece of rigid airline tubing and super glue it to the side of my sump and use that as a holder for the probe. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, um, my sump is an old wet dry filter mm -hmm. and there's a slotted plate between the section that I use for a refugium and the section where my pumps and stuff are. And so I have the probe wound through the slots on that that plate because I did have a problem once where the, the probe got popped out of the water and then my tank thought it was room temperature and, and or thought room temperature was, was the tank temperature and the heaters the never turned off controller was trying to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of so. what I, w I was getting to is w when you're using controllers like this, you want to make sure that your, your probes are securely mounted and if appropriate cleaned off, um, the the important thing is to make sure that they they are reading the right temperature in the tank, um, and there's there's various backup methods and stuff like that you can use. Now, um, another thing is 
to throw out there with heaters in general, it's usually a good idea to use multiple heaters. Uh, instead of using one big one, choose to use two smaller ones. Um, I actually have um, two uh, two heaters in my refugium, um, and I also have two small heaters in e- well in each of my one in each of my main tanks, my frag tank and my display tank. Um, and this came out of a problem that I had when I went on vacation. What had happened was uh, I had somebody here watching the house and watching the tanks that wasn't you know intimately familiar with well okay really wasn't familiar with most of the stuff at all, but was just here to watch it. And what had happened is that I had a power outage. And uh, there was uh, some draining of the water, and we had there's some other problems. Like, anyways, long story short, um, the main pump, the return pump for the tank, had to be shut off. Uh, my my Mag 24 return pump, which mean, meant that water from my refugium was not getting sent up to the other tanks, uh, and it was there was just too much going on for me to walk the person through how to fix it and how to get everything up and running. It was just too there's too much, uh, so. What ended up happening is I ended up with no heaters in the tanks. I mean, all the other tanks were self-sufficient. Um, they just needed the return water to keep them warm. Uh, so what I've done since then is I've got two small heaters that sit in there, enough for the tank. I mean, it's small, and they're not as big as my other ones, but they're big enough to, to heat the water in the tank. So I've got uh, two heaters in my refugium and then heaters in my each of my display tanks. Uh, just as backups, and the important thing that I wanted to note here, actually, where this where I started this whole thing from, was uh, to make sure that you test your heaters, especially when running multiple ones. Because if you have a failure in a heater, you'll never know it if you don't test it. Because the whole point is is that you have multiple ones as backups. So uh, what I do is I'll I'll pull them out and uh, usually just feel them, give them a, a couple seconds to warm up and feel them, make sure they're getting hot. Um, and usually I'll do this, like I noted earlier, I use all my heaters during uh, you know warming up water in my buckets. Uh, which is nice because I do everything in five-gallon buckets. So with with four or five heaters, I can heat four or five buckets of water, and you know they're all ready to go at the same time. I don't have to wait one on one, one by one by one by one. Um, you know, but it also gives me a chance to test each one of my heater, heaters, so I, I can identify if there's a problem. So uh, I'll quit rambling on there. Is there uh, anything else we want to add on there? This is Carmi. One other thing I'd like to add when you're using a backup heater that a lot of people do is they set that backup heater a degree or so above mm-hmm. their main heater so that that you have a fail-safe there. Yes. If your main heater doesn't work, yep. I guess a degree or so below it. But No, that's a good point. And what will happen so you, so is... So you've got that fail-safe. Yeah, and it won't kick on as often. It's going to get less wear and tear because it's not going to be running as often. And you won't get those same calcium deposits that Samuel was talking about because it's not going to be generating as much heat and, you know, so on and so forth. But, yeah, having having a backup heater and setting it a few degrees higher is, is uh, a common practice. All right. Is there any other uh, things that we wanted to add about heaters, chillers, controllers? I don't think any of us have uh, any of the reef keepers or Neptune controllers or Aqua Controller or Aqua Controller Juniors or anything like that. Um, so there's there's a lot of good information about those, but we just don't have them, so we're going to refrain from getting into those details. Um, anything else before we move on to uh, the next topic? All right, well, uh, the next one is we're going to talk about lights and lighting in general and what we do to maintain them and so on and so forth, and we're going to hand that topic over to Pearson if you want to go ahead and get started there. Sure. 
Um, I have a, a mixture of power compacts and HQI metal halides. Uh, as far as maintenance goes, I've got to be fairly vigilant about wiping down the UV shields on the, the metal halides. Mm -hmm. They tend to accumulate a lot of salt creep, I guess because they're hot and, and any little bit of, of water instantly evaporated and just leaves salt. So once a week, I try to go through and, and uh, wipe those down after the lights have been off for a while, obviously, because they stay hot for quite a while. Um, I also have plastic shields over the, the PC bulbs. Um, they're just part of the fixtures. So I wipe those down at the same time. They don't tend to get quite as dirty as the, uh, the UV shields over the metal halides. I have um, power compacts over my hang-on refugium as well. Uh, they don't tend to get quite as dirty. I guess just because they don't get splashed quite as often. Uh, but I do wipe that down when I think about it, and that's typically when I look over there and think it looks kind of dark. I better go clean off that plastic. And I've also got two uh, power compacts under the tank uh, that are lighting some additional keto in my in my sump, which is, I guess, not a huge also. Um, but they are the bulbs from Home Depot, and they're actually pretty neat. They're, they're the little spiral power compacts, like you would buy to replace a regular standard bulb, mm -hmm. but they're in a sealed container that's uh, a lot like a floodlight or a spotlight, I guess. Are they the like Lights container. of America and fixtures? Built... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what they are. Yep, that's what I use um, on my so they've got built in. Yeah, they've got built-in reflectors, and, and they're nice, and it makes it nice and easy to clean because you can just wipe them off. They tend to get quite dirty as well because I get a lot of splash down under the tank from the return, yeah. or from the overflow, rather. Um. So I've got to make sure that, uh, that they stay relatively clean. Outside of that, uh, I tend to replace the power compact bulbs uh, about every six months. Um, I think that's pretty standard. They could, it looks like they could probably continue to run longer, but uh, they, there's definitely some noticeable dimming at that point, so I go ahead and swap them out. Um, my 12-gallon nano at the office also has power compacts, but I have only had it for about two months now, so I haven't had to swap those bulbs out. But it looks pretty straightforward. They're just power compact, so they should unplug and plug back in. Uh, the metal halides, uh, uh, here they can go up to a year. Um, the last time I swapped them out, it was uh, about eight months. Um, in order to keep track of that, I do, like a lot of people do, keep the boxes in the stand under the tank uh, with the date written on it. I'll also hold on to the bulbs that I just pulled out and stick them in the new boxes in case one shatters for some reason or stops working or, or gets cracked. So I've got the backups there. They're obviously not brand new. They're not optimum, but it's certainly better than having an, you know, an out bulb. Right, better than nothing. Sorry? It's better than, it's better than having nothing if you use a, one of the older yes. bulbs. Yes, absolutely. Um, outside of that, I just uh, sort of try to keep the pictures free of concrete uh, and dust. Um, there are fans in the metal halide fixture. I try to blow those out every once in a while with the, the little cans of compressed air that you can get for blowing out computers or, or other electronics. And they do tend to get a lot of crud in there. Um, and the ballast as well also has a fan in it. I try to blow that out when I think about it, but it's sort of tucked out of the way, out of sight, so I don't uh, don't probably clean that out as often as I should. Um, but outside of that, that's pretty much all I have to do as far as maintenance for lights. Awesome. Yeah, that, that that sounds pretty much uh with the same thing same stuff that I deal with uh on my power compact fixtures. It's a, it is a a good thing you mentioned blowing out the the fans in the inside of there cuz they do uh, a lot of times what they'll have is they'll have two openings, one 
is where air comes in and the other is where air comes out, obviously. Um, well, along with air, dust comes in there. And dust on electronic components, which can be inside there, can be problematic. So it's it's a good idea to, to clean those out and just blow some air through them. Um, it's not something you have to do all the time, but uh, it's a good thing you mentioned that. That's an important thing. Uh, wiping off your shields and bulbs. Uh, if you don't have shields, then the bulbs. Uh, is important. I know we've we've talked about that a few times in the past uh, past shows about keeping your metal halide bulbs clean uh, and the impact that that can have on on their ability to project light down. Um, and also, the uh, if you don't have shields, it's important to uh, keep your reflectors clean too, uh, for the same reasons. Uh, dating bulbs uh, is another thing that uh, that I do that uh, you mentioned and. Um, I do my metal highlights the same way, date the boxes. And on my power compact bulbs and on my VHO bulbs, I actually write the date with a, a permanent magic marker either on the base of the power compacts or on the end of the, the fluorescent tube on the VHO bulbs. So uh, that way I know when, when to replace them. But uh, that was, I guess, more of a recap than anything else uh, on what you said. So uh, is there anything else that anybody wants to add, uh, kind of open it up for everybody, go around and add some stuff about lights? Uh, Rob, this is Mike. I had a question on the metal halide lights, the double-ended ones. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you if if you'll notice, a lot of people will say that they need to be shielded with glass, and some say no, they don't need to be shielded because the the the, the bulb itself is shielded from the UV lights. What is your opinion on that? Actually, it's not an on opinion. Like, the, the the small double-ended metal halide bulbs, like the one that Pearson's talking about, are actually not shielded. They right. do not have a shield on them. Um, so it is it is absolutely critical that, they, that they're in a fixture with a shield. Um, the single-ended metal halide bulbs, which are more like the big screw-in socket ones, those do have an outer shielding on them that acts as a UV shield. And uh, the reason for adding an additional shield to them is primarily as is protection in case water splashes on a hot bulb and it or something causes it to shatter. Uh, you don't have you know everything inside of your tank. Um, so that, that's something that uh, I know that we covered in the the metal halide lighting show. The double-ended bulbs they do not have that outer shielding. Um, if you've ever looked closely at a at a single-ended metal halide bulb, the big one with a big huge mogul socket that you screw in. If you look inside of that, you see the little little section inside there. That's actually the double, the same thing as a double-ended metal halide bulb. Well, not exactly, but it's it's pretty similar. Um, and that outer glass tubing is what's missing on the double-ended bulb. So it's you do have to have those shielded. So the shield is more for the splashing of water than the UV poisoning. On double-ended, on single-ended bulbs, yes. On double-ended bulbs, on HQI bulbs. It, it is for UV shielding also. Um, you'll probably wipe out your entire tank if you run it without a, a double-ended bulb, without the, those shieldings in place. And, and how long would something like that take to show, just start showing effects? Um, well, when, when we were talking to, we talked to, I think it was Brian Plankus in, no, no, not Brian. Um, God, I can't remember. We did one of the shows, and uh, there was a, a a crack or a gap in, in one of the UV shields and um, it had actually projected down and within a week or so it was killing corals underneath it uh, from the, okay. the high UV exposure. Uh, but again, this is only on, on the double-ended uh, bulbs, not the single-ended bulbs. And I guess like, I mean, I guess that is a maintenance thing. If your glass does break or something does happen to it, you 
should go ahead and replace. Yeah, on on single ended on the. I'm sorry, uh, I'm going to screw everybody up here. On the double ended bulbs, it is it is very very important that those stay um, in in one piece and that they're not cracked or anything like that because. Um, that UV exposure coming through that is, is dangerous to the inhabitants of your tank and is also very dangerous to, to your skin if you're, you know, working in there. Rob, do you know if the, the UV shields on the HQI bulbs are, is just standard glass? If something were to happen, could you just go to the hardware store and get some glass? Or does it um, have a, some kind of special UV coating on it? Or? No, my understanding is that it's the... Um, Usually, well, you know, I haven't had a fixture, so I'm not going to say for sure, um, but usually they're a special type of acrylic. Um, and if they are glass, and it, it, I'm a, assume it's a special type of glass also that has a UV coating on it because, uh, the, you know, that is one of the primary functions of having them on there. But uh, I, I've never run them, so I don't know firsthand. Uh, yeah, I, I would assume it's not regular gas glass. I would I would not attempt to replace them with regular glass. If you have a a commercial fixture, I'd go back to the manufacturer to get that replaced. And if it's a DIY job, well, then you you know you you got the original one, and I'd do the second one the same way. I couldn't tell you where to get you know what to do with it if it was a DIY and this is your first one. So I'm not sure. Well, I have the Solaris um, hood for my light. So it's a little bit different. You do have the fans. I want to make sure that that stays free of dust and debris. They don't run hot like even a PC or, or even a normal output fluorescent light. So, so the heat and is not so much of a problem with water hitting it and immediately evaporating it. But just like anything else, you can get salt on it. So I take a, a damp cloth, and the fixture itself is pretty much sealed up. So you can't you can get into the LEDs, but there's there's a shield over them. So I wipe that shield off with a damp cloth every once in a while just to make sure that I'm getting the complete light penetration down into my tank that I want. Awesome. Good point, Stu. All right. Well, um, before we wrap up light topics or anything else that anybody else wants, I think we had a, most people jump in on that one. Uh, anybody else there? Uh, this, is, this is Bobby. Uh, I run two VHO actinic bulbs on my display tank, and I think it's probably pretty important to say that you need to keep an eye on the end caps of T5 or VHO bulbs that are not in a fixture. All of my lighting, except for one fixture on my flag tank, is it's all DIY. So you need to keep uh, an eye on your wires and your end caps on a lot of the bulbs to keep the salt creep away because salt creep is a conductor of electricity and if it, it also if it falls into your tank it can burn a coil mm-hmm. so you need to you need to pretty much keep those things clean uh, every time you open the canopy or or look in under the hood you want to kind of just give it a visual inspection of just to make sure you know it's clean. Yeah, that's that's a good point too. I mean, you you gotta you want to watch it, make sure that your wires are not corroding, that your your end contact points there's no corrosion in there. Which when you're inside of there, um, it's something you usually check out when you're replacing your bulbs. But like you said, every time you look in there, it's good good idea to keep an eye and just visually inspect that, um, so you don't have any shorts or anything like that. Good point. All right, excellent. Now let's move on to. Um, 
we're about at the end of the show. I've got a couple, uh, two, like two more topics I'm going to try to squeeze in here. Um, one thing that we didn't really get a chance to talk about during, you know, during the list of topics that we went through is um, more of the in-tank maintenance stuff that's done. A lot of the stuff we talked about was the equipment that we maintain. Um, but I wanted to take a, a few minutes. This is something that Carmi wanted to mention uh, or, take, or at least start talking about. And this is maintenance that's done in-tank specifically with dealing with deep sand beds. Uh, something that I – it's very controversial. Uh, well, at least it's – a lot of people talk about it, and a lot of people aren't really sure what's going on. And I, I know I discussed it in, in significant detail when I was going through the, the sand bed shows, uh, or the substrate shows, really, and the one on, on deep sand beds. Um, but it's about stuff that you have to do to the sand bed itself uh, through, you know, as, as a regular maintenance type item. So, Carmi, if you want to go ahead and uh, get going on uh, talking about that, that would be awesome. Oh, one of the things that I have come to believe from my reading is that one of the reasons you get old tank syndrome with a deep sand bed is that sand bed is just allowed to sit there and nothing ever happens to it, especially if you don't have a lot of sand sisters in your aquarium. So every time I do a water change, I'll get in there and purposely disturb a small area of my sand bed. So when I'm talking small area, 5 to 10% of the sand bed and what I'll do is I'll kind of rotate that around my tank. And I don't have a grid pattern or anything that, that I'm saying, okay, well, this is A1 this week and A2 <laughs> next week. But um, I, I do try to rotate it around so that that sand bed, while it's stable and doing its job of having anaerobic bacteria, so it's doing the complete denitrification job, there's still all the time, a little bit of diversity and a little bit of change going on through there, which should over time help to keep it from becoming old and and getting into an old tank syndrome. And I understand that when you get into that old tank syndrome, you can just have your whole sand bed just crash. And I've never run into that. And talking to a lot of people who have used um, deep sand beds for years and years that when they follow this kind of a maintenance schedule where they are actually disturbing the sand bed a little bit um, every periodically, every week, every two weeks, once a month, whatever their schedule is, that they have never run into a problem themselves either. Uh, what I actually do is I have a gravel washer type siphon and I'll just put my finger over the end of the tube so I've pretty much stopped the water flow, push the gravel washer part down into the sand bed, release my finger for a minute so it lifts the sand up maybe a half an inch, and then put my finger back over the end of it, and I'll let the sand all fall back down into there. But in the meantime, that, I don't know how big that gravel washer is, an inch and a half, two inches in diameter. In the meantime, all the sand in that inch and a half or two inches in, in diameter has been picked up and, and the sand grains rotate throughout there and then they drop back down into their appointed place in, in the sand bed. Yeah, and that's a good point. And like I mentioned, this is something we go through. And if you if you aren't familiar with the, the problems that can happen with with sand bed, deep sand beds, there's a lot of stuff that can build up inside there. And you can check out that show for more details. Um but uh, yeah, Carmen, you're right. I, I've come across the same thing. It's 
pretty much anybody that you talk to that's that's maintained a tank for multiple years with a deep sand bed and has not had problems, um, you'll almost always find that what they do is they'll go through some type of maintenance and dis- disturbing process, disturbing <laughs> um, process of, of mixing up the sand bed um, like this in some way, shape, or form. Um, and while I don't think there's any you know hard scientific proof or anything, I think it's a uh, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, it's definitely something that can be helpful. Yeah, I think so. All right. Rob, this is Mike. Yep. Uh, uh, something that I do, I, I try to rely on my uh, my sand, sand sifting gobies and my nocturious smells to do that. Um, I don't think you can have enough of those smells in your tank. Uh, they will, you know, they will dig in your sand. My, my snails stay in my sand. I've never seen them. Yeah. I know they're always roaming around. Yeah, the, having, having those type of critters in there is definitely extremely helpful. Um, depending on what they are, some of them will go down deeper into the sand bed. Um, I like to do it anyways because there's there's a lot of those critters that won't go very deep into the sand bed. Um, and, of course, you know, take into account what you have, and it may not apply uh, to everybody's case, but uh, most of them won't go more than an inch or inch and a half into the sand bed, uh, whereas most most deep sand beds are going to be, you know, four, five, six inches deep. Um, so I find that actually going in there and doing something like Carmi mentioned with a, a large one or two inch tube, um, which is uh, a good way to do it, or um, what I've done in the past is I will, uh, and I do recommend using, you know, at least a, a small a rubber glove or something for this because I'm always worried about what's going to be in there. I've been poked by Bristol worms a few too many times, um, but I'll put a little rubber glove on. I'll just stick my fingers in there and uh, kind of move them around a little bit and pull them back out. Not like grabbing handfuls and turning it over, but just kind of sticking your hands in there. I've also taken um, uh, just tubes and stuck tubes in there, and th- there's various things that you can do. Um, the main point is you want to try to um, turn over, turn you know, turn that area over a little bit to grab some of the sand from the bottom, mix it with some of the sand from the top, uh, release a lot of those uh, potentially dangerous chemicals that can be building up in there. Uh, that's kind of the, the gist of it there. Um, anybody else that wants to jump in on sand beds? Uh, this is Bobby. It's not really a sand bed issue, but it's still an inside the tank maintenance. Uh, Every time I do a water change, which is usually about a 60-gallon every two weeks, uh, I try to go in with a turkey baster or some kind of water propeller and blow out the, the live rock and all the crevices. Uh, it gets a lot of detritus built up and everything out of there and gets it back into flow where it can be caught by the skimmer. Uh, that's about all I can really think of at the moment. No, nope, that's good. I actually just wrote down that note to, to mention that too. So it was perfect timing. Um, cleaning off the rocks and uh, glass and stuff like that is all good things to make sure that we do on a regular basis. All right. Well, um, let's kind of move on to the last thing here before we before we end the show and take a couple minutes. And Pearson has uh, does some stuff with carbon and, and phosphan that he wanted to mention. Let's go ahead and, and talk about what how you use that, how how it's in the tank, and how often you you replace that. Sure. Uh, I have two phosphan reactors running in the tank. Uh, they're daisy-chained together and running off of a uh, Maxi-Jet 600. 
Uh, in the first one, I run Carbon, and the second one runs Boss Band. Uh, I'm daisy chained together so that any crud that gets sucked up and put into the uh, into the reactors typically will get caught in the in the first canister with the carbon, which gets changed out a little more frequently than the phosphane. Um, but it, it basically just stops crud from getting in, mixing with the phosphane, right? Cause channeling and, and cause it to be less efficient. Um, I change out the carbon. I try to change it once every two weeks. Um, doesn't always happen. Sometimes it happens you know, once a month, uh, which is when I change out the phosphan for the most part. Um, sometimes I let it run a little bit longer if I, if I see that the phosphate hasn't moved any. Um, but typically I try to judge when that needs replacing by when the, the phosphate starts to creep back up. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I have a feeling that some of it's leaching out of my live rock due to the, some poor choices I made at the beginning of, uh, <laughs> of the tank, <laughs> unfortunately. But... Uh, that's uh, typically how I'll judge when that needs to be replaced. Um, carbon does pretty well. Um, I can definitely tell if I've let it go for too long when I put the fresh carbon in. Um, water looks a lot better. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the only maintenance really is uh, you know dumping the stuff out, refilling the the, uh, the chambers uh, for carbon and phosphate both. When I refill it, I will uh, take the the output tube out of the sump and just uh, stick it into a five-gallon bucket and turn on the pump, and it just washes all of the um, crud out, the black dust for the carbon and the brown dust from the phosphan. I'll usually let a couple of gallons run through and then uh, just dump that bucket out of, of crud. You can you can try to wash it beforehand, but really I've found that's the, the easiest way to do it. It's awesome. No fuss. Awesome. Get that done. Um, the only near disaster I've had with my tank was actually due to um, one of my phosphan reactors and my own stupidity. I had, uh, when I first put them on the tank, I was right before I left for five days out of town, and I know everybody says you should not add or do anything different to your tank right before you leave on vacation, but <laughs> I, of course, ignored that bit of advice. And I uh, didn't really pay very close attention, I guess. The way the, the phosphan reactors work is they have little rubber elbow boots that uh, slide over some little barbs in the top, one for the input and one for the output. And the one for the output, I guess, was a little bit loose and was leaking a little bit. And you uh, have a slow drip out uh, down the side of it and, I guess, onto the little bracket that holds it onto the side of the sump and then right out of the sump into the stand under the tank. And over the course of that five days, I uh, managed to, to drip enough out through that reactor to drain my whole 25-gallon uh, ATO reservoir. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, and dropped my uh, dropped my salinity quite a bit there. Although I guess it was slow enough that it didn't really cause any damage. I mean, the, you know, everything was closed up and, and looked kind of uh, unhappy when I got back. But I don't still think alive, I lost huh? Anything in that whole in that whole thing. Yeah, I was, uh, was pretty lucky and slowly yeah. raised it back up over the next couple of days. But that's certainly something you should check. There's uh, those little rubber boots on the top. Make sure they're on there firmly and on the the top of the reactors themselves, uh, they have small O-rings. Yep. And when you're dealing with fine granular stuff like phosphate and carbon, it's easy to get a little bit of, of something stuck up there. So you want to make sure that those are, are nice and clean. And when you hook them back up and, and fire your pump back up, just watch them for a little while. Yeah. Please, just watch them for a little while and make sure that they're not leaking or doing anything funny. But yeah, it's a good that, idea. Great in, in some of those, a lot of those, uh, those type settings and, 
you know, some other types of pumps have fittings like that. And uh, using little plastic O-ring clamps or something on there is even even small zip ties are can be helpful just to make sure that those. Mine are zip tied on now. Yeah, exactly. So, um, <laughs> yeah, those phosphate reactors are are pretty convenient little tools for running, you know, stuff like this on a regular basis. They, they can, you know, be run constantly and they're far cheaper than some of the larger canister filters that can be used for carbon. So, uh uh, a good you choice. Can run whatever you want in them. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. Well, um, I think we're reaching about the end of the show. Uh, filled up our time slot nicely here. Uh, so I'd like to kind of take a minute, and uh, I'm going to go back around the roundtable here and see if there's any closing remarks that that anybody has, last-minute tips, tricks, or anything that we maybe didn't get a chance to mention during the regular show. Um, so let's go ahead and start with uh, Bobby. Is there anything that you wanted to throw in before we move on? close out uh just wanted to quickly say to the new people in the hobby that are just now listening and learning about the, the podcast patience is the key and if you get in a hurry something bad's going to happen take your time <laughs> research and you'll you'll go a long way in the hobby and listen to all the talking reef podcasts <laughs> 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 sorry <laughs> shameless plug and, and, and and check out reefleaders.com. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. Um, Carmi, what do you got for us? Anything? Any closing words? Well, one of the things that we didn't exactly cover was how often we do water changes. And I know as we were talking before the um, podcast started, we all work on a little bit different schedule about how often we do water changes but we are all in agreement that that's a really critical part of your tank maintenance is making sure you're doing regular water changes and you stick with that schedule, whatever it is. Yes, it's very important. And without getting into the details, everybody's tank's different. Um, if you don't know how often to do yours, then you know we can definitely help you. Uh, on the forums, you can post questions about it. Generally speaking, every one to two weeks is is. Uh, the best way until you know your tank. And once you know your tank, then you can vary that as needed up to, you know, a few weeks or whatever's appropriate for you. So awesome. Thanks a lot, Carmi. Um, Pearson, is there anything you want to throw in? Um, no, no real words of wisdom. Uh, just if you can make your, uh, make your tank maintenance a routine, something that becomes second nature. Yes. Um, if you need to keep a little checklist of all the things that you're supposed to be doing, but you know, after you've been doing it for a while, if you do the same stuff on the same schedule, it just gets to be second nature. Nothing gets left out. Um, yes. Just just make it as routine as you can. Yes, good 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 tip. Or checklists can even help if you post a little checklist right by your tank or in one of your doors or you know on your on your stand. That that could be helpful to to get your routine going. Um, okay, and uh, Sam, any, Samuel, anything left uh, for you? Uh, yeah, I would just say one thing I was doing when I first set mine up was I took, especially the first week when I had all the contraptions in there, I just watched it. it sat, there's nothing in the tank, um, just base rock, but in water. And then, you know, I just watched it to see how it would work and see how things turn. That way, when they started not working correctly, I could recognize it. Yes. And like take those little rotating doohickeys when they slow down 
I know that they're going slower because I've seen them enough. And I, and I know that, you know, as you get, I'm sure, you know, with years of experience, it's, it's second nature. But I, I intentionally did that the, when I first set everything in there just to keep an eye on it for a little while. So if, even if I kept waking up in the middle of the night, even if the slightest thing changed in terms of sound, you know, it's like, wait, something's not quite right. Sure enough, there's like a filter sock sucked into a into the Mag 24. That's yeah. happened to me a couple of times. So, yeah. And but once you get the hang of it, then it's, you know, like, I think this needs to be changed or this needs to be cleaned or something. So. Yeah, so the main point here is is really do what you need to do to become familiar with your system and your equipment. Uh, that can be helpful, and that advice can can go a long way. All right, well, um, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, thanks, everybody, for sticking around with us, and thanks for all of the Roundtable members for getting together and, and working through and sharing your, your little bits of information with us. Uh, make sure that... Uh, uh, all of the listeners, head over to TalkingReef.com, the website, the forums. If you have any questions or need help with anything, that's the best place to get it. Um, and also, don't forget to check out the new Talking Reef site, which is uh, ReefReaders.com, which is uh, a whole collection of various different types of articles. Uh, uh, a lot of them are written by uh, just everyday people uh, sharing their experience with uh, with everybody. Uh, good site there. Got a lot of stuff that's uh, coming together. So. Um, that's about it for us. Uh, again, thanks to everybody for, for joining this for this show, and uh, we'll talk to you all next time. <laughs>